Yeah, and it's very, very uncommon for prices to go down. That's what we call deflation. Uh, and, and as you said, it's a lot more common that we see the growth go down, which is disinflation. If inflation, if, if prices were going up 9% last year and they're going up 3% this year, that's disinflation. Inflation is slowing down, but prices are still going up 3%. And the problem is, if prices go up 3% this year, well, that 3% is likely going to be part of the cost of everything for the rest of our lives because it's very uncommon for prices to actually go down. All right, welcome everybody to the Saving Capitalism podcast. And today we've had so many changes. We're getting this one out really, really quickly because we've had the Fed. They've announced what their plans are moving forward. And I am so grateful for my friend and now guest, Jay Scott, to come on here with me, who any of you guys know, you probably heard from him from Bigger Pockets or read one of his books, or you may have even heard him on me and Jay's podcast, Drunk Real Estate, which you guys can check out. But he is a real estate investor. He came from the tech side and just really understands what's going on in the economy um, macro and micro and how those things are affected. So I, I asked him, it was last minute. I said, Hey, we've got this announcement coming on. Will, will you jump on here to help me walk through what's happening? We now have clarifications. So many people have been waiting for, it means a lot to the economy and everybody's trying to digest this. So I really appreciate him coming on here to help me walk, uh, walk through this. So Jay, thanks again for coming on. This is a, a big announcement. We're kind of at the tail end of all of this and was everybody was kind of just waiting. I, I feel like everybody was waiting. Like, is this, where are we going, right? Like, is it done? Or are you just gonna keep going or, or what? And uh, I, I think, what are your initial thoughts, man, when this information came out? What, what do you think is going on? Well, first it scares me when you say, I, I understand everything that's going on. Um, I, I don't think any I don't think anybody right now understands everything no. that's going on, and and that that includes the Federal Reserve. If you if you listen to uh, to yesterday's uh, announcement and Jerome Powell's speech, and uh, everybody has opinions, and we've got a lot of data, but exactly what's going on, I don't think anybody knows. Uh, but the takeaway from yesterday, I mean, the long and short of it was, and I think this was expected as of the last couple of weeks. Um, the market is pretty good at predicting where interest rates are going to move at these meetings simply because uh, there's this what's called a futures market where uh, traders uh, can literally like trade on the likelihood of interest rates going up and down. And one of the things we've seen, especially over the last year, year and a half from the Fed, is that they are very, very averse to surprises. So if the market kind of indicates that there's not going to be a hike, the Fed is not going to hike unless they kind of put out notice ahead of time um, that they're going against the market. Likewise, if, if the market thinks there's going to be a hike or going to be a cut, the Fed doesn't really do anything um, against that belief unless they they announce it or signal it why uh, is a couple that? weeks in. Why do they take that approach? I, uh, I, my take is, and I, I, I obviously can't get in the head of Jerome Powell, uh, but my take is that for them, um, surprises are bad. 
And that, that makes sense. I mean, uh, when, when you have a surprise, you get a lot more economic activity. You've got a lot of trading when it comes to things like treasury bonds. So that can move treasury rates up and down very quickly. And, and quick moves in, in treasuries um, is often bad for the consumer. Likewise, the stock market. Uh, the Fed doesn't want to kind of put out any surprises that might jolt the stock market either up or down. I mean, we like to think stock market jumps up are, are good, um, but anything that surprises the, 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 the equities market, the stock market, um, can ultimately be bad for consumers. And so I, I think the Fed just is very cautious about any of these surprises that can jolt the economy um, because at the end of the day, uh, it means things start moving in ways that the Fed can't predict. And the Fed likes to be able to predict. They like to be able to forecast. And so surprises tend to be a bad thing. Well, and it also, you know, you as a business owner and an investor, as as I know, that surprises make it impossible to plan. So should we invest? Should we staff up? You know, we were talking about just our deals and everything in our businesses that we've got going on uh, right now before the podcast here. And it was kind of that same thing as everybody's like, you know, how do you plan? Should we be selling? Should we be buying? And if you have a, a Fed that you don't know what they're going to do, like you don't spend money, you don't hire, right? If anything, you may start to hedge because the unknown um, can hurt you really bad. Yeah. And um, I mean, again, if you actually listen to the things that that uh, Jerome Powell says uh, when he's answering questions from the audience after his announcement that they weren't going to hike rates yesterday, a lot of it was around being noncommittal, um, very much open ended, like anything could happen because people listen to these meetings, they listen to his comments, they dissect every word that comes out of his mouth, um, and then they attribute certain predictions to the way he says things or what he says or what words he uses. And once those predictions are made, again, it kind of locks the Fed into either following through on that or surprising um, everybody out there. And so uh, there's a lot of talk about, yeah, there could be another rate hike later this year, despite the fact that all the data kind of indicates that things are starting to soften. There's a lot of data that's that's come out the last month or so, and especially over the last week or two, that has indicated that what the Fed has done over the last year and a half, um, basically economic tightening through increasing interest rates um, and a couple other things, is starting to work finally. Um, and so things are slowing down and, and there's a lot of reasons to believe that if things continue on this exact same trajectory, we're not going to have any more rate hikes, but Pal isn't going to come out and say no more rate hikes. Instead, what he says is, um, we still think there could be another one later this year. Um, and so he's kind of preparing the market for that, that worst case scenario so that if they do have to hike rates, if something changes, um, again, there's not going to be, it's, it's not, it's not going to be taken as a major surprise. No. Why don't we kind of go back here a little? Can, can you talk talk to us a little bit about what you interpreted or what you see as we had this huge inflation? What is the Fed doing? Why is it doing? What is, what is their goal? Right? Like what what are they trying to achieve, and what are they willing to do to do it? Yeah. So keep in mind, we, we hear the word inflation and we think inflation's a bad thing. And it is bad because inflation means, and, and just to use a layman's definition, inflation is kind of the price of stuff goes up. The price of our gas goes up. The price of our food goes up. The price of our housing and rent goes up. And obviously that's bad for consumers. Um, but if you look at the underlying reason why 
inflation generally happens, um, it's often a good thing for the economy. It, it's kind of it's 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 a mixed bag. The reason we see price inflation is often because the economy is so strong. People are making a lot of money. A lot of people are employed. Wages are going up. People have all this money to spend. So what do they do? They take vacations and they drive their cars. So they're buying a lot of gas and they're going to restaurants and they're going out and buying more clothes and they're buying more toys and all of these other things. And businesses have to keep up with all of this demand. They need to hire more. Restaurants have to hire more waiters and waitresses and more cooks and stores have to hire more clerks and salespeople. And, um, and so when they have to hire all these the, these new people and they have to build new manufacturing plants and they have to build new warehouses and they have to buy more trucks and more equipment, all of that costs money. And so for businesses to keep up with this booming economy, they have to spend a lot of money. And how do they? What, what do they do when they spend a lot of money? They don't eat that cost. They pass it on to consumers in terms of higher prices. So the fact that we're seeing inflation, um, while COVID was certainly a big issue, and there were there were other things at play here, supply chain constraints. Basically, we weren't getting enough materials and enough finished products to market. Um, so there was there was not enough supply to to fill the demand, but at the end of the day, the big reason we've seen inflation over the last two years is because people are spending money like crazy and businesses have to keep up with that. So they need to keep buying and spending and they're passing on that that uh, that that increased price to consumers. And, and that's what's causing inflation. So at the end of the day, yes, inflation's really bad. But the reason for inflation is generally because the economy is doing really well. So what does the, the, the Fed want to do to kind of tame inflation and get it down? Well, they have to kind of take the opposite tact and they have to get the, the economy to do not so well. So how do you get people to stop spending all of this money? How do you get people to stop taking all these vacations and, and going out to eat all the time to slow down the economy? Well, you raise interest rates. And raising interest rates does two things. Number one, it encourages people to stop spending because it costs a whole lot more to spend money, especially if you're putting something on a credit card, um, if you're taking out money on, on your house through a HELOC or you're refinancing. Basically, borrowing costs become a lot higher, and so people spend less money. They don't buy new cars. They don't um, buy new houses. They don't buy stuff on credit cards because it's expensive. And then there's a second thing. When we increase interest rates, well, typically savings rates and CD rates and money market rates go up, so people are encouraged to save more because you're making money by putting money in a bank. So by raising interest rates, we spend less, we save more, that slows down the economy because we're not, we're not buying as much stuff. And so the reason the Fed started to raise interest rates last year was because they wanted to slow down the economy. They wanted to get people to spend less money, and they raised interest rates really quickly. It went from essentially zero to about five and a quarter or five and a half percent, and the thought was that that should slow the economy down tremendously pretty quickly because inflation was was through the roof and so they wanted to get quick returns on on this on this policy unfortunately what we saw was even at five and a half percent interest rates right now um, we're still seeing really strong demand people are still spending money people are still uh, putting money on credit cards. People are still buying cars and buying houses if they can. Um, and so we haven't had the dramatic effect that I think the the Fed expected us to have when they started raising interest rates a year ago. Um, and luckily, inflation is coming down. We're getting closer to the target. The target that the, the Fed sets is 2% inflation per year. Um, 
And to, to be clear, we like a little bit of inflation. A little bit of inflation is good because it allows the economy to grow. It allows the economy to, to, to continue to, to make money. It allows businesses to make more money year over year, which allows have us- to have inflation. Like, we have to have inflation. The government that's can't pay its debts country. if we don't have inflation. <laughs> exactly. It, it, that's, a, that's a big, and we can talk about that as well. But at the end of the day, inflation is one of the things that, that keeps our economy the strongest in the world. But too much inflation is bad. So the target is 2% per year. Um, we came down from like 9%. We're currently somewhere in the mid 3%, um, which is great. It's it's a lot of progress, um, but even three, three and a half, four percent inflation that hurts the consumer because it compounds every year. Things go up three, four percent. If you look at the the compounding rate over five or six or seven years, that's that's a fifty percent increase in the price of things, and the Fed can't have that. And so they're really targeting that two percent rate, and they're doing everything they can to get us to two percent. Well, and you bring up a really good point that a lot of people miss. A lot of people think that inflation. The inflation rate that sets like prices and goods and services, they, they assume, oh, inflation's down. That means that the prices of goods and services will go down. No, that's not what that means. That only means that the, the rate at which they're going up has slowed down. And that shocked, I think, a lot of people when they hear, oh, inflation's down. Everything's going good. And they're like, my milk still cost three times what it did a year ago because all of a sudden 8% doesn't sound like a big deal. But you're right, it's a compounding. So all of a sudden you get up in north of five, you get prices doubling, especially because inflation isn't flat. Meaning that some things are growing at a much higher rate than 8%, right? Some things are growing at 20%. And so all of a sudden you, you, you have 8% means that in certain areas of the economy, you have massive price increases. And then when people hear that that slowdown is here and everything, it, it, you can see, and a lot of people I think are, are feeling almost like a, a little jaded or something when they're like, hey, I, you said that inflation's down, but that doesn't mean that prices are going down. That's not what that means. Yeah, and it's very, very uncommon for prices to go down. That's what we call deflation. Uh, and, and as you said, it's a lot more common that we see the growth go down, which is disinflation. If inflation, if, if prices were going up 9% last year and they're going up 3% this year, that's disinflation. Inflation is slowing down, but prices are still going up 3%. And the problem is, if prices go up 3% this year, well, that 3% likely going to be part of the cost of everything for the rest of our lives because it's very uncommon for prices to actually go down. And, and two, we don't want them to. Obviously, that sounds good. By every means, it's like I want houses to cost less. I want my milk to cost less. I want cars to cost less. I want tuition to be less. I want everything to be less. But you have to understand what it means if prices go down. And uh, what uh, Jay is talking about here, the opposite of inflation is a economic nightmare. So that is, you're talking um, depressions. You're talking the Great Recession. When you start to see overall economic uh, growth go negative, or excuse me, not growth, but economic uh, or the price of all things. Uh, so if when that starts to actually go down, that is a indicator of, and that's a result of something really catastrophic going on in the economy. And that is the, the entryway to depressions, right? 
So when you get into deflation, um, it's it, that is a really scary thing because what happens is, uh, like inflation, you can get that runaway. You, like it's all of a sudden inflation gets to a point where it can no longer be stopped. That's called hyperinflation, right? I have a plaque um, at my my house and my parents did, it, and in Brazil. It has all of this money on my plaque. And in the middle, it has a hey eye. And then it has all the old currencies that I would find on the ground. You know, $1,000, $100,000 bills that were just worthless on the ground. Um, that is like you get hyperinflation, so they have to get rid of the currency and start over again. But deflation is like that, whereas if it gets too low, everything spirals out of control. That means debts restructure. That means everything. And that is super, super scary, everyone. Here's the thing that a lot of people don't think about or, or realize when it comes to th this concept of inflation. Um, we talk about inflation being good for the economy, um, where everybody is kind of sitting around saying, well, how is inflation good? Because it's making things more expensive for me. The reality is inflation is not good for people. Inflation's not good for you, it's not good for me, it's not good for my family, but inflation is good for businesses because inflation allows businesses to charge more and to make more money and to grow and it allows the economy to grow. And that's the two big competing forces that we have here. We have inflation bad for consumers, but good for businesses. And we have to make this trade-off and the Fed has to think about this trade-off every day. And yeah, we would love to always do what's right and, and in the best interest of you and me and all the other 300 million people in this country. But at the end of the day, if we weren't doing what was best for the businesses in this country, our, our economy would collapse and it wouldn't be good for anybody. And so the Fed really has to play those two competing forces off of each other. They have to, to try and do what's best for us as individuals, but they really have to keep inflation moving at, at a 2% at a, at a clip to make sure that businesses can continue to grow, the economy can continue to grow, and this country can continue to be the major uh, economic force that it always has been. Yeah, the inflation hits, unfortunately, the class of people that can't take the hit. And that's why inflation, I, I think, you know, lots of people, we feel like it is so bad. In fact, deflation is almost the opposite, where it hits the top uh, uh, quartile of society, because that is a cratering normally of assets, right? Now, the problem with that is, though, the cratering of assets obviously leads to mass economic crisis. Uh, yep is deflation, right? They lost control of asset prices. I was just going to say, uh, when you and I were growing up, we had this massive middle class. Yes. The vast majority of people in this country fell into this socioeconomic bucket that was kind of around the 50% mark. Um, and certainly there were wealthy people on one side and there were there were poor people on the other side, but, but there was a, a big mass right around the center uh, that we've always referred to as the middle class. And when economic things happened, it typically impacted that middle class the most. And so the Fed would kind of drive policy to do what was in the best interest of those people in the center, the vast majority of the people in the middle class. Well, what we've seen over the last 20, 30 years, and especially over the last 15 years since 2008, and even more so since COVID, um, is that this middle class is kind of going away. And what we've seen is money is flowing 
up to the top. And so we have this 80, 90% of people who have been pushed down from the middle are now either poor or struggling um, or uh, lower middle classes as the term we used to use. And then you get another 10 or 20 people who've been propped up and pushed up and all that money that's that's been pushed into the economy by the Fed and by the Treasury and by several administrations is flowing to the top. This money's coming in through businesses. This money's coming in through subsidies and, and policy. And what are they doing with it? They're investing that money and they're growing their wealth while the, the other 80 or 90% of people at the bottom are struggling just to buy food and to buy a car and to pay their rent or pay their mortgage. And so we're seeing a, two very different economies in this country right now. And it's the reason why a lot of us feel like everything is going great. I mean, I talk to a lot of real estate investors who own hard assets, who are still making a lot of money, business owners, entrepreneurs, who feel like everything is really good, uh, the economy is great, and yet I go out and I talk to the other 80% of people out there, and they're struggling, and they're talking about how we're in a recession, and it's hard to reconcile these two opposing viewpoints, but when you think about it from the perspective of there's now no longer a middle class, most of the people are down below the middle class, and a few are above, it's starts to become obvious why why we have these two very different perceptions in this country right now. 100%. And this is a really important thing, I think, for everyone to understand, because this shapes how you hear conversations on economic policy, as well as political pundits or whoever's talking that's just spitting off things, where when you look at it, what Jay's talking about, I mean, think about if you were in the middle class, and now where housing prices have risen, all of a sudden you have this ginormous quartile of the middle class that's like, I can't afford a home anymore. Am I even middle class if I can't afford a home? And then all of a sudden they're sitting here going, I can't have four kids. Why? Because I can't afford a grocery bill of $500 a week on food to have a family of six, right? So then all of a sudden they're going, I'm not middle class anymore. And I can't take trips. I can't do anything because what we've seen over the last five years is this just ginormous price increases. And so you, you've really tipped this scale to where the middle class as far as pay isn't what it was four years ago. So we lost a huge segment that's just, they may be middle class by numbers, but they are not middle class in practice. Application for the middle class has completely changed. Their the cost of tuition now, what what the, their disposable income, mobility, everything that lower class basically just became poor. And then the middle class almost got divided up and that middle class has gotten really small. And uh, that is, once again, people say, no, it, it may be really healthy and everything, but the middle class doesn't feel like middle class. And if they don't feel like middle class because they can't buy things, are they middle class? Yeah. When, when it costs $30,000 to pay all of your expenses, your, your rent, your groceries, um, your, your, your insurance, uh, put gas in your car, buy new clothes. When it costs $30,000 to do all that, making $50,000 per year seems pretty good. You've got an extra 20K a year that you can save or you can spend or you can go on vacations. But when suddenly it costs not $30,000 a year to, to do all that, but it costs $50,000 to do all that because of inflation, and yet you're not making much more 
because wages haven't kept up with inflation. Maybe now you're making sixty thousand. So before you were making thirty, and you or you needed thirty, you're making fifty. You had twenty thousand left over. Now you're making fifty. You need or you're making sixty. You need fifty. You only have ten thousand left over. Or worst case, you're you're making sixty. You need sixty. Or you're making sixty and you need seventy. The point is, people don't have as much, thanks to inflation, people don't have as much disposable income as they used to. And the real problem is that wages are not keeping up with the price of everything else. Yes. And it's a catch-22. People say, well, you should just raise your prices. And then, But business owners say, if I raise my the income of my employees, now I have to raise the products that we're selling to be able to continue operating. And so all of a sudden, it's a it's a real big catch-22. In fact, the lower quartile of business owners, they're getting hit with all of this. They don't have the margins they used to. They can't afford things like insurance, payroll. I can't hire another person to do it. And then you have all of a sudden that middle class and even uh, independent business owners uh, and smaller business owners that are now going, I'm working twice as much. And th this is a real, this is huge. This is a massive issue, everybody. Uh, and it's one that I think it's important. I hope that you understand with Jay and what we're talking about right now. There's no magic wand that solves this. Uh, government stimulus, which a lot of people say, well, why doesn't the government just do this? So why doesn't the government just pay for this? Why doesn't it pay for that? When the government starts paying for things in the form of everything, whether that's checks in the mail, whether that's bailouts, whether that's whatever it may be, that money goes to the top. So every time the government has rolled out mass stimulus programs, the size of billionaires in this country has gone way up. And so that money is just taken from, guess who? Taxpayers. It's moving through the class system and going straight back up to the top in the form of equity, asset appreciation, and overall income. So these trillions of dollars that the country uh, has spent on the tax dollars dime, guess where that went? There's a reason why billionaires are worth so much more than they were today ever since 2008. And Jay brought that up after since 2008. Well, what has happened since 2008? The largest spender in the world became the US government. And guess who got left behind? And uh, this it's it's easy to think that there's a magic wand that we can solve this problem, right? And that's what I think what happens when people, they vote themselves money, right? I don't know if you've heard that term, like, oh, we learned that we could just vote ourselves checks. Oh, well, I'll just vote myself that I don't have to expend anymore because he's promising that I will. But that it it's just not that simple. Yeah, and here's something else to keep in mind. Um, in 2008, six, seven trillion dollars between 2008 and 2013, um, since COVID, um, last two administrations, um, somewhere like $10 trillion. But there's another big one that we've kind of, we, we've just kind of ignored over the last 20 years. And that was, we've had this war that finally we're out of, thank God. Um, but for 20 years, we were fighting a war that cost us $10, 12000000000000 trillion. And so that was money that the same way, it wasn't stimulus, it wasn't just handed out, um, but in the same way, who did it go to? It went to large defense contractors, it went to- Manufacturers. Uh, it, it, exactly, and so that money trickled into the economy and where did it go? It floated to the top, just like all the rest of the money. And so that's that's part of the struggle that we're seeing here is that, again, we don't have this middle class and 
any of the money that's floating out of the government, including, um, I mean, we talk about uh, uh, Biden's uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which at the end of the day was a, a massive infrastructure bill trillions of dollars in infrastructure, which in theory sounds great. It's, it's, it's going to the people, but it doesn't stay with the average person. At the end of the day, it flows up. And so all of these trillions of dollars, stimulus, war, infrastructure bills, it's all flowing up to the, to the wealthy and the wealthier getting wealthier and the, the poor staying poor and getting poorer even. It, you're No, you're 100% right. This and I think that it's so easy because we can justify so much, but then the outcomes, because we're not, we're not told what the outcomes are, right? So like the, all right, well, the war in Ukraine, the war in Iraq, right? The military industrial complex. All of a sudden you look at this and this, this, this spending, and that's a, like this shadow part, QE, right? Well, who did that go to help? All of a sudden when we're erasing debts, when we're sending checks out, like it's there's these third order consequences that happen. And those third order com consequences are first and foremost, besides the direct impact, is the money supply. So the money supply, everyone, is this whole, I view it almost like this blob. And as it expands, that pushes everything up. Why you have more dollars that chases goods and services. Then as it shrinks, the opposite happens. Businesses, people get laid off, right? The Fed's trying to control that money supply, but there's all these levers that the government does this. First of all, the government, meaning our uh, executive and our other branches of government, and then the Fed itself, okay? And how they issue debt to our own government, which lots of people think that that's foreign buyers, okay? So we think, oh, it's China's buying all our debt. That's actually not true, it's you. So the largest holder of government debt is Americans. We buy our own debt. It's in all of your 401ks, all your all Roth IRAs. We hold all of it and we're buying all of it. And we've actually set up laws in place to do this. So we can issue more debt. We have the means to, we are the reserve currency. And so it's this become this just never ending spending frenzy. And the people that are pushing to get the spending done are also the ones that it goes in the hands of. And during this time, the middle class just fell behind. And I, I, and I agree, I think this all started in 2008. We had never, the government had never ever done intervention like this. Now, two, let me be clear, I think it was necessary. So that we had to stop what was a crater. So the, the trillions of dollars that they put in, roughly three trillion over that whole time, that went in to fill a hole, meaning the money supply like evaporated. Everybody was going bankrupt. Everything was losing. So money just disappeared because money is debt. There's no difference. So when you restructure debt, you go, okay, well, you had a million dollars in debt. I can't pay that back. So that million of dollars, I can pay back 500. You get 500,000. You lost 500,000 in the economy the same way as if you put a pile of $500,000 bills and lit it on fire. So when you have debt restructuring, that money supply is sinking. So the government had to backstop it because banks, everybody else was failing and they needed to save the financial institutions. So I don't even think that it was wrong. How they went about it, that's different. But um, when you roll into all these other bailouts programs, whether it's war, Afghanistan, Ukraine, whether it's what happened with COVID, they weren't filling anything in. So the money supply didn't shrink. They were adding trillions of dollars on top of an economy that was already running good. And what happens, all that money starts sloshing around 
where does it go to the top and what does it do, do to the price of goods and services they go up and that forces middle class down into poverty it's a big situation that is a global thing with money supply in the united states what they're trying to do now higher interest rates they're trying to get that money blob that they've now expanded and gets expanded with debt as the economy is doing good they're trying to get it to shrink they're trying to stop it they're like it's too much that's why inflation is going on and they're trying to protect the everyday people right and uh the problem with it is though it didn't have those desired effects at all um they thought we were going to have uh unemployment they thought we were going to go into a recession and they thought that this this situation would occur and reduce that money supply and right now they're looking at it okay we got inflation to not grow as much but it did not have the effect and i think that that's where everybody's like what are they going to do we now recognize this problem it's causing social economical um uh government political issues where people are being torn against each other on both sides of the aisle and it's becoming a blame game and the feds trying to get control of this that's been going on now so wait it's been how long since 2008 that we've been just printing like mad um and there's no easy way everybody there's no easy way out of this it doesn't work like that yeah and and i i i hope the next question is what do we do about it because or i hope the next question is not what do we do about it because i don't know and, yeah. and the problem is, I don't think anybody knows. And at the end of the day, um, I, I see two potential ways out of it, and and neither of them pr are pretty. Um, one, we could have a massive what's called deleveraging, um, basically an event where all of that debt. And and you're exactly right. What is money? Money is debt. Um, you're create. You don't create something out of thin air. You create a note. To, to create money, um, and so money is debt. And what we saw in in the nineteen early the late nineteen twenties, early nineteen thirties, in the Great Depression, um, was this thing called a deleveraging, where all of that debt or much of that debt went away. It went away through bankruptcies. It went away through um, uh, foreclosures. It went away through businesses going away, restructuring. Um, and so, yeah, we were successful in getting rid of a lot of that debt um, off the off the economic balance sheet for lack of a better term. Um, but in the process, um, we had tens of millions of Americans who were suffering. Um, we had an entire generation dying. Um, yeah, exactly. And so that's one way we, we kind of get rid of this debt is we have this big, massive deleveraging, but that would be, I mean, destruction of the economy. The other way is we restructure and the world economy debt. too, because then it was just us today. It's exactly. Not. Exactly. We, we're in a global economy now, and if, if we if we lead in these sorts of things, and so if we have this massive deleveraging, it's likely to trickle around the world. Um, and then the second way is we do some type of 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 planned restructuring of debt and currency. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know exactly how that's done, but I can promise you, if we do that, it's not going to be to the benefit of the average consumer. No. And one of the things is, I think people think, first of all, a lot of stuff like corruption and in cahoots and everything, you have to understand that, yes, there is that. And that happens when you get a big money supply like we have now, because you can't keep track of everything. So all of a sudden, billions of dollars don't mean anything. Doesn't mean anything to you. Doesn't mean anything to me. When the government says they're going to print $3 trillion, we don't understand that. 
I don't. I have. No, I cannot fathom. I can't grasp it. I can't really understand the overall impact of a billion dollars, and most people can't. It's just too much. So when we're talking numbers like this, that breeds corruption because nobody misses a hundred million dollars. They don't even know where it goes. It's it's nothing, right? It's like you giving your kids five bucks. It doesn't mean anything. And so when you have this, but the problem is when we talk about it, normally doesn't help uh, uh, regular people. The reason being is they're trying to save the system and the system is built by business owners. So they have the structure, meaning that the government has to save those people in order to get products, services. I mean, you're talking about what would happen if we lost our car companies, Amazon? What would happen all of a sudden if you lost the mining operations, the tech companies? It's game over, right? The, the country literally doesn't even work. So the government then has to come in to save these companies because they have to save the infrastructure in these hard times. And then that gets obviously very controversial, as we've seen, because now you're saving institutions in lots of cases like 2008 that actually caused it. Um, and they did a horrible job with that. And I think I think you're right. But you're no matter what you go through a restructuring. You're, that the average people get hurt. There's no if, ands, or buts because they're on the last of the list to save because they're trying to save the whole, not the individual, the whole. They're not worried about, you know, 2 million people. They're worried about 300 million and they're worried about the future of the country. So it, it, it is a complicated thing. So, you know, simple answers don't work. And it, I think it, it's my, what I believe is going to happen and, and keep going is probably that we're not going to see actually dramatic change. I think actually what will happen is we're in this for a while. I, I think that we have stagflation. I think it's just going to suck. And this money that's been dumped in is not going to easily come out. I think we need mass policy changes like stop sending trillions of dollars to Ukraine. Get out of the wars. That was great, right? Stop it. And stop just this printing press going on. And uh, But at the end of the day, the I think the economy just has to do it itself, meaning that these high inflation, uh, high inflation gets tapered through high interest rates, high interest rates stop economic activity. And instead of it being violent, it's just going to suck for a long time. And we've I've kind of this has been our thought process since two years ago was that we'll probably see some of the worst of it in 2023 this year. Um, and then from there on out, we'll be coming out of it. But this is something, guys, we may not come out of till 2025, 2026, even getting onto a normal road, because the only way to do it quickly, it's violent, right? So quick fixes are like 2008. The world imploded and the government printed trillions of dollars to save it. Those are two massive reactions that are not normal. Um, and so it's either that or it's this sluggish way to which I want to get your take on with interest rates and talking about the future now. I don't think interest rates are not only going to be going down. Um, I've talked to a lot of people about this, but you know, Jay, as I do, because you were in business prior to 2008, but having sub 5% interest rates was not normal. That was not something that everybody got. That was not something that you went and said, I'm going to get a 3% interest rate. And I, maybe I'm wrong here, and I probably am, but I think we could very easily never see that again. And that's only ever occurred in the last 10 years. In the history of the world, we've never seen that outside the last 10 years. 
And I think that policymakers may be going now, we're not doing that anymore, right? We're not doing it again because it's either that or they have to stop spending money. Try to get a government to stop spending money, right? Like, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, so I, 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 it's my impression that I think we got, we're just going to be in not horrible, but not great. I think it's just going to kind of suck for a while. I don't know. Well, well, here's the thing to remember. Um, interest rates, just like we had to, and when I say we, the, the Federal Reserve had to raise interest rates in order to slow the economy down when things got overheated, um, if and when, and it'll happen eventually, whether it's this year or next year or 10 years from now, at some point, we're going to be in the midst of another recession. And just like we raise interest rates to slow down an economy, we lower interest rates when we're in a recession to heat up the economy and to get us out of the recession. Because again, remember when we lower interest rates, we're encouraging two things. One, we're encouraging more spending because it's cheaper to borrow money. Um, and we're discouraging people from saving because when interest rates are lower, you're not making any money on your savings account or your CD or your money market. Um, and so that is kind of the, it's not the only lever that the, the Fed has to pull to get us out of a recession, but it's the big one. And so if, and not if, but when we see that next recession, the Fed is going to reverse course and they're going to drop interest rates. Now, the question is, um, will they get interest rates higher than they are now so that when they reverse course and drop them, they're, they're not significantly lower than they are now? Um, or will they be able to drop them a, a small amount so we don't go back to where we were two years ago um, in order to get us out of the recession. Now, historically, if you look over the last 35, 36 recessions, on average, the Fed has to drop interest rates about 5%, 4.5% to 5% in order to get us out of a recession which if, if, uh, if, if we were to follow that, that kind of historical trajectory, that means that if we went into a recession tomorrow, the feds would have to drop interest rates back down near 0% to get us out of it. Hopefully that's not the case, and, and hopefully like things don't react in the future the way they have in the past, but that's the reality. I, I think as much as, as the Fed would love us to keep interest rates at 4 5 6 7%, because as you said, that's our historical average, I don't see that as being realistic. I think as soon as the, the economy starts to slow down, the Fed's going to reverse course because they're terrified of bad economic news. They're, they're managing not for five years or 10 years down the road like they should be, but they're managing for this quarter, next quarter, next election, unfortunately. Um, and, and so I kind of, I, I think I disagree with you, even though I think the, the idea is correct. I disagree that we're going to see interest rates stay above 5%. Um, yesterday at the meeting, basically what they do is every couple meetings, I think the last time they did this with what was in June, um, uh, 12 or 13 or 15, I don't know exactly how many there are uh, of, of the fed, folks um, kind of make their predictions and they they draw out these dot plots where um, every person says, okay, come 2024, this is where I think the federal funds rate is going to be. Come 2025, this is where I think it's going to be. And then they plot that out. And so you can see kind of what each person or what the, the aggregate of all the people think the average is going to be over the next several years um, for the federal funds rate. They also do this for GDP and the unemployment rate and inflation. But for the federal funds rate, um, and I have this in front of me, um, 
the consensus was uh, it looks like six uh, or six or seven of the the Fed folks think that rates are going to stay the same through the end of this year, and then another twelve or thirteen think that there's going to be one more hike this year. So the consensus among all of them is either rates the same or one more hike this year. Then you go to next year, and the consensus is um, all but two. Um, feel so 17 or 18 of them feel that uh, over the next um, uh, next year over 2024 rates are going to average somewhere around 4.8 4.9%. So the consensus is that rates are going to come down. Then that that dot plot starts to to lengthen out in 2025. There are a few people kind of higher up, but then the the big blob of them are down around looks like 3.8%. And then by 2026 they're down around 2. Five or two point six percent. So they're just guessing. No, they don't know. But these are the people that, at the end of the day, will make will, will vote on whether or not rates go up or down. And their prediction is that over the next three years, we're going to see rates going down to the the high twos again. And so it's like we're seeing what they want to do. Exactly. Exactly. And and that's part of the problem is that they've kind of put out there these predictions. Um, what's in their best interest when? It's expectation, and it's also they want to be able to say, hey, we're smart. We make good predictions. Well, when the people that, that make predictions can control those predictions, you can pretty much expect <laughs> that whatever they think yeah, is going to happen, they become a profit. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, and in, in you bring up a really good point, and I, and I got to say, I, I do agree with that. I think that looking at the interest rate, that's an economic viewpoint, but if when you start to add in the people, part of it and what they want and we've seen that's their playbook yep that's what it's turned into so i i think you bring up a really good point and um i actually i i i adhere to that because you're right they're they're short-term thinking not long-term um i we do not have the quality of the paul volkers that we uh you know used to that were like i will give up short term in the tune of years for long-term economic stability and they're looking very much at even when you look at inflation, it's very much like, nope, we're looking just right here, right here. This is it. We're, we're like next report and then whatever, we're going to make a, a decisions off it. And it's very keyed into a few factors of which they change. So I, I think that's right. I think, too, it's one thing for us all to realize, though, too, the good thing is that they can do that. So you can be in a much worse situation. And that's when z interest rates are zero. And then we go into deflation. Um, that is basically an economic nuclear warhead. It's game over for everybody. 100%. It's yeah. done. Because what that means is the government has lost total control and they cannot stimulate the economy anymore. Whereas today, if they went and dropped interest rates to zero, it would be a buying frenzy. Um, people would be buying homes because we have so much pent up demand and we will going forward. So on the upside to high interest rates, it's that there is the ability to stimulate the economy. And it is uh, probably naive of me to think that uh, those people will not absolutely stimulate it when they want and to get it to work instead of just having it organically because they know they can do it so easily. Uh, so I, I, I agree with you on that, Jay. Yeah, I think the right move is keep rates higher, even move them up a little bit more if you can, because I agree with you that I think that's what's right long term. But I don't think they're going to do what's right long term. They're going to they're going to do what's convenient short term. 
So before we end now, everybody listening um, and get to listen to me and Jay nerd out about economics because we, we could talk about this stuff all day. I, I love Jay's insight. I love having a discussion with him. He's not only open-minded, he's willing to change, doesn't think that he knows everything, um, which is very, very refreshing, even though he knows so much. He uh, is very humble about it, and that allows him to be critical thinker. So well, that's great for everybody here, but what does that mean for individuals? Now, if I'm trying to build a business or invest in this type of environment, what is your advice? What are you doing, and what's your advice to others? So uh, first, I, I think the big question is where are we heading short term? It looks like things are starting to slow down a good bit. Um, we got a lot of economic news this week, and I know this is coming out shortly after uh, um, after we, we record, so it, it's not going to be stale. Um, but we saw that uh, in the in the housing market, um, builder confidence is down. Um, and so I'm a big believer that um, if you want to know where an economy earlier this year. Even it with is. high interest it rates, is. their confidence was up. A hundred percent. And I'm a big believer that if you want to know where the uh, economy is headed, you talk to builders, you talk to business owners. Because at the end of the day, they're the people that drive the economy. Um, consumers obviously have an impact on the economy, but but they they kind of lag. And so businesses and, and, and builders are the ones that are going to be at the forefront. What they're doing is going to impact the economy the soonest and the hardest. And so builder confidence is down. Um, housing starts are down considerably. Permits are up, but housing starts are down, which basically says that builders are getting ready to build, but they're not. They're waiting for something, and I think it's it's the uncertainty, and I think a lot of it is still the, the high cost of labor, the high cost of materials, and so builders are in this position where they could start building if they want to. They have lots of permits, but they haven't actually started to build, and they're starting to build even slower than they were a few months ago. So I, I think that's an indication that uh, that uh, that builders are are slowing down, and that's an indication that the economy is going to continue to slow. On the business side, there was a manufacturing survey that was released. Uh, it's a monthly survey that was released uh, yesterday, and um, and that was down for the 14th out of the last 16 months. Basically, what they're saying is their ma manufacturers are manufacturing less. They're delivering less. There are fewer orders. Um, basically, businesses are starting to slow down their spending for inventory and, and raw goods. And so, again, businesses are going to lead the economy. So I think over the next several months, we're going to see a softening. We're going to see a softening in the employment sector. We're going to see a softening in building. We're going to see a softening in business. Um, and, and so that's going to kind of uh, uh, slow things down, um, which ultimately I think is going to keep us from seeing more rate hikes in the future. So what do I do or what do we do as individuals, business owners, real estate investors? One, we need to keep an eye on the cost of borrowing. Um, now, we've talked about the federal funds rate, that, that rate that the, the Fed sets uh, maybe slowing down or stopping uh, where it is, no more increases, but that doesn't mean mortgage rates can't go up. The thing that drives mortgage rates is, is treasury yields, this thing called the 10-year treasury, which is the debt that the, the government um, puts out there. And um, if those bond rates goes, go up, then typically mortgage rates go up. Those bond rates have gone up three quarters of a point in the last several months. They're at their highest level since July of 2007, just before the last 
big recession. And so with, with bond rates, bond yields going up, it's likely that we're going to see mortgage rates go up. I, I read something this morning saying that 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 we're expecting over 8% average mortgage rates, 30-year fixed rates um, in the next few weeks. And so that's going to impact uh, business and consumers from borrowing because those rates bleed into credit card rates. They bleed into all the other rates that we see to borrow money, bank rates. Um so what I would say is if you're a business owner, figure out what your strategy is now. If you're coming to a point where you're running out of money, you either need to refinance debt or you need to borrow. If you're a real estate investor um, and you've got a short-term loan that you're going to need to refinance out of or you're going to need to recapitalize, figure out what your plan is now because we could see mortgage rates elevated for the next 6 to 12 to 24 months. Um, and so that's that's my big concern right now. Um, but I think we're going to see a slowdown over the next six months. And so I would say if you have a contingency plan for the economy slowing down, again, whether you're a business owner or a real estate investor, now's the time to start thinking about that contingency plan. It's going to create opportunity. We all know there's opportunity um, at the other side of that slowdown. Um, but there could be some pain for the next six months. And so so now's a great time to be shoring up your capital, refinancing your debt before interest rates go up. Um, now's a great time to be building your network and, and figuring out what your plan's going to be because once things hit that trough, once we get to the bottom, there could be a great buying opportunity for real estate investors. There could be a great uh, opportunity for business owners, but you need to be prepared. And so now's the time to shore up the capital, shore up the relationships, shore up your credit, um, figure out where the money is going to come from when you need it. Now's, now's a great time to be preparing. Um, it's not necessarily a great time to be executing. I think that time is going to come in the next six to 12 months. Yeah. I And I think for everybody to also to think about what Jay's talking about, um, you got to remember what happened with interest rates. That was really fast. I, I mean, you're talking about it was just a massive spike and um, lots of times it takes it takes time for the economy to meet what was happening, right? So because interest rates went up, doubled today, doesn't mean you have a recession tomorrow because the interest rates have to go into effect where you have to have that effect overall capital supply through the non-issuing of as much debt. So then that's a it's a laggard, right? Because what it means is we're not putting as much debt out there. So that uh, the money supply is shrinking. You have to have business that have to go through capital reserves and all this other kind of stuff. So I agree with Jay. I think that, um, you know, the end of this year is probably where we'll see the most of it. I've even told my team and I'm like, fourth quarter, guys, this is when we want to, you know, really be ready. We're trying to find deals and everything now, but we think we're probably gonna get get better deals. Another reason why I think that is, you get people that are done sitting on the fence. It happens so fast that so many people are like, oh, it'll change again. Like literally talking to people, they're like, oh, it's okay because every it'll lower interest rates and it'll go back next spring. That was this fall. They thought that this was like a six month thing. Um, and it, now you have a lot of those people are realizing, mm, that's not how this is gonna work. Uh, so then that means you start to finally get stuff that are going to move those deals that people are holding on to. So, uh, Jay, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for coming on. Uh, I, I think everybody listening to this has like it, a finger on the pulse, right? It's maybe not answers, but we know what's happening and that's what we're, we're, we're trying to get at. So where can people go to find uh, more about you, listen to you, learn from you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, jscott.com. Letter J, S-C-O-T-T dot com, and that'll link you out to everything. Easy enough. 
Perfect. And everybody, don't forget, go check out Drunk Real Estate. Um, I'm your official designated driver on that crazy ride. But it's awesome because uh, we get to, me, Jay, two others, we've got on our crew, we get to go through all of this stuff and we're hitting really updated things. So lots of times on my channel, I'm interviewing and I'm doing topic-based things. Whereas when we look at the Drunk Real Estate podcast, everyone, it is like we're covering relevant two-day information, what is happening, what that means. Uh, so it's an absolute must listen. And you get to hear from Jay every week on it. So please, everybody, check it out. And Jay, thanks again for coming on. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Talk soon.